Uh, you're probably wondering what I'm doing with this here, this jacket. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at Canadian Tire. I helped three different customers until I finally realized that actually because I was wearing red, they thought I worked there. And it happens that every time I walk into Canadian Tire now, I realize, okay. And the third guy, I realized, actually, I can't help you. And by the way, I don't work here. See, it says Napa on here. It doesn't say Canadian Tire. Uh, the reason I say this is it would actually be so sweet if you and I were so obviously followers of Christ that people would see us and, and that's the conclusion they would come to. Rather than, oh, you're a Christian, I would have never guessed. Um, I, it would be so nice if witnessing was really just about filling your head with the right answers and then spouting those answers and done. And, and then you could just kind of live and do what you want, but you just, you just, in fact, you could write it on a piece of paper and just hand those out. And there are people that do that, and I'm not dissing it, I'm just saying that actually that's really not the full extent of what it means to be a winsome witness. I call this, uh, this uh, sermon this morning Commitment and Sacrifice because I realized that that if we talk about a life change or transformation and not con being conformed to the world, that requires commitment. And it also requires sacrifice. And, and the interesting thing is that, that God invites, but he doesn't impose, he doesn't force. So there's a part that you and I have to do, and that's the part where we actually submit to the Holy Spirit, where we, we ask Him to fill us and direct us. There's, there's that part is ours to do. But then, if, if we try to just conform our behavior on our own, we call that legalism, and that actually doesn't work. First of all, it doesn't work, and secondly, it won't, it won't get us there. Uh, so this morning, I, I want to look at what's a, just a really practical uh, teaching from Paul in Romans chapter 12, and uh, the first part of uh, chapter 13, and try and tie this together. Uh, this passage starts with the fourth therefore in Paul's letter. It starts with therefore, which obviously ties it to what he said in the chapter previously about God's mercy and grace and love. And the first therefore was Romans 3.20, where he talks about condemnation, about us all being guilty. The second, therefore, is in chapter 5, verse 1, where he talks about our justification. Therefore, we are justified by faith. The eighth one, uh, sorry, the third one is Romans 8, verse 1, the therefore of assurance. We have assurance of faith. And then this fourth one is the therefore of dedication. We are, because of God's mercy, because of his grace and his love, therefore, we dedicate ourselves to him. And, and so these first two verses are the basis of all of the relationships and all of the, the character transformation that comes after that. Paul says that we are to offer or present, depends on what version you use, offer or present our bodies a living sacrifice once and for all. That, that verb is in the tense of once and for all. It's kind of similar to a bride and groom standing at the altar and committing to each other. Um, and I realize that it won't work, men, for you to say to your wife, I told you 30 years 
ago that I love you, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. Uh, that, that really doesn't work. But we're talking here about a commitment that is made, a solid commitment, kind of like two people committing to each other at the altar. And, and Paul's two reasons for this commitment that you and I make, number one, it's the right response because of all that God has done for us. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of what God has done for us, this is the only logical response for us to commit ourselves to him. And then secondly, he says, this commitment is our reasonable service. This is reasonable. And, and by the way, you know, I, I've sometimes said that, you know, pastors in the, the spiritual ladder, pastors are up here and missionaries are in the nosebleed section. That's baloney. There, there is, yes, there are different callings, but really every last follower of Christ, every believer is called to commit to Christ and to provide reasonable service based on what God requires of us. We're all, we're all in it in the same fashion. And then he says also, this is not only our reasonable service, this is our spiritual worship. So my commitment to God is actually described by Paul as a form of worship. As a form of worship. And that probably means that every day is a worship experience when you yield your body and yourself to Christ. And it's the essence of our response to God's grace in our lives. So our obedience is a product of what God has done in our lives, not something that you and I manufacture on our own. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. We respond in obedience because of what God has done for us first. Well, he talks about renewing the mind. The heart and the mind is where commitment takes root. In our innermost being, we decide for or against God. Now, we can give assent with our lips, but it's the heart that reflects our, two, our true loyalties. It's in our hearts where beliefs and commitment to God take root. That's the heart of the matter. So that would then stand to reason that the, the new creation has to begin in the heart. That's where it begins. This would also mean that worship is about more than just the Sunday morning. It's about the way we live each and every day. Our worship experience is an experience of reflecting on what God has done for us and then expressing that. And I sometimes wonder, I don't think that God ultimately cares how we sing, and I, I cringe when I say that more, I'm, I, I like good singing. But what he does care about is what we sing. And I think we should sing well, and one of the things that I like about this church is that we do sing heartily and we sing well. I think I can say that. Uh, but it's what we sing. In other words, our minds are engaged. Our heart is engaged. We are engaged in what we sing. And we are moved to praise and worship by our experience of God. Renewing the mind, then, is by definition an internal process. It's internal. It's not external. It's not like changing a shirt. Well, Paul goes on to, uh, after he talks about this commitment of not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by renewing your mind, he comes up with some very practical guidelines in verses 9 to 13. Love must be sincere. And these are all just like short, rapid-fire statements. 
Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourself, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Wow. That, that in and of itself there is already a massive assignment. And even though there isn't really a unified governing theme, there is a persistent motif in these verses. The call for a humble and peaceful attitude toward others, both believers and pre-Christians. And, and I would say this is part of our witness. This is how we behave. This is more than a red jacket at Canadian Tire. This is much deeper than just the externals. It's, this is how we respond to other people. Paul makes it clear that a mindset of love will always result in actions that are in full accord with God's good and perfect will. Our actions are a product of our attitude. I think I, I, I made a little step forward the other day. Attitude. I was going where I famously have my troubles, close to 7-Eleven, and a pickup came out of 7-Eleven without looking and just cut me off. And I honked. But hang on. Here's the mental process. You poor dear, you're probably asleep or distracted. And I hope that by my honking, I have woken you up so that you don't have an accident further down the road. In other words, I wasn't angry I was thinking, sir, I'm doing you a favor because I hope I've jolted you into being more attentive to what you're doing because you're obviously asleep or eating or on your phone. So my, I still honked, but my motivation was different. I wasn't wanting to yell out the window, get a life, or you shouldn't have drivers. I was thinking of him or her, I don't even know who was in the vehicle, I didn't see them. Uh, of course, they quickly whipped around the corner and took off. I don't know if they were actually wanting to go that way, or they just didn't want to have anything to do with whoever was honking at them. Attitude. Attitude. How do I treat other people? And I'm, This may seem like a small thing to you. To a guy that gets frustrated driving, this is a big deal to me, to be able to change my thinking when I drive. Verse 14 to 21, Paul talks about a peaceful response. A peaceful response. Blessed are those, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited, do not pay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. I'm not sure I really like him saying, heaping burning coals on someone's head. I think it's conviction. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Of these various manifestations of love that Paul touches on in this chapter, none receives more attention than non-retaliation. In other words, non-violence in all its forms. 
That's what he's talking about here. He's, he's encouraging us to take an attitude of nonviolence. It kind of lines up with Jesus' comment in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, bless those who persecute you. Believers are to be people who don't adopt this world's tit-for-tat approach to relationships. You see, even, even the Old Testament rule about an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wasn't an encouragement to do violence. Actually, it was meant to deter violence. Because the temptation is, you've knocked out one of my teeth, I'm knocking out two of yours. In other words, escalation. And this was meant to, to deter. And then Jesus takes it a step further and says, turn the other cheek. In fact, you'll never, you'll never stop violence by responding in violence. And Paul's argument here is that we need to recognize that God will ultimately right all wrongs. And he will avenge all evil. We're not to avenge wrongdoing. We're to respond to evil with kindness and love. I think here we find one of the most distinctive of all characteristics that are to mark Christians and our witness. That we don't retaliate. That we respond lovingly even when it's difficult to do so. And I realize that the desire to avenge ourselves on those who harm us is deeply rooted in human nature. I realize that what we're asking for, what Paul is talking about here, isn't natural, it isn't easy, it isn't normal. It comes out of a transformed mind and heart. Well, Paul goes on, and, and I realize that I'm skipping a, a number of passages. We could spend a, an entire year in this chapter. But 13, verse 8 to 10, I think is somewhat of a summary statement of what he's focused on or what we've looked at today. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. It seems to be that if you get the love part right, you don't have to worry about everything else. In fact, I don't remember who said it, but it's been said, love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. Because if you love God, then what you will like to do will fit with that. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Well, Paul returns to his earlier point here, his main thought, picking up this theme of love. Love is our inner commitment to God expressed in our conduct and our relationships. According to Paul, those who do not show love to others can hardly claim to love God. And I think John in 1 John 1 verses 5 to 10 would agree with that statement. When people truly love and exude love for God and others, they're offering the one sacrifice that pleases God. When we truly love God and others, we are offering the one sacrifice that really pleases God. All of the commandments of the Old Testament law culminate in the demand that we love our neighbors as ourselves. And even Jesus, as I've said in the Sermon on the Mount, affirms these twin foundations, love for God and love for neighbor, as summing up the law. 
As children of God, we must live on the highest level, returning good for evil. This is part of our witness. This is what winsome witness looks like, where we return good for evil. I think anyone can return good for good. Anyone can return evil for evil. But the only way to overcome evil is with good. Love one another is a basic principle of the Christian life. And this is the new commandment that Jesus gave us. When you and I practice biblical love, there is no need for any other laws because all others find their expression in the law of love. When we live transformed lives, a commitment to Christ, and sacrificially loving our neighbor, instead of conforming to the world, our witness has power, it attracts, and it draws others to Christ. So you don't necessarily need a red jacket. A red jacket isn't going to cut it. You and I need to be transformed. We need to become more like Christ. How wonderful it would be if people saw us and would say, you know, that individual, he or she is different. That person follows Christ. A life transformed by love, transformed by Christ, is a powerful witness. So, the hard work, the hard work is the submission to the Holy Spirit. The being transformed, the not being conformed. That's the hard work. The great thing is that you and I don't do it on our own, in our own strength. We do it as we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us and direct us, to nudge us. And then we can celebrate those victories. And then when we, we trip and fall, we get up and we go again because God is helping us to be transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, let's pray, and then I'm going to ask Mo and Gerald. They're going to come up and uh, see if there are some comments or questions, and then we'll try and we'll try and respond to those. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is um, this is daunting. Our human nature, our flesh, just wants to go in a di totally different direction so often, and we long to be guided and direct filled and powered by your Holy Spirit. We long to become more and more like Christ. And, and we recognize that our justification is not on the line uh, because we have been bought with a price. But we also recognize that sanctification is a process and we are being sanctified as we are being transformed and renewed by your Spirit. So we ask this week as we go forth to our jobs and to our homes and our neighborhoods and wherever we are, where we work and play, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to be winsome witnesses as we carry ourselves in a way that would honor Christ. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, uh, a couple of questions.
We'll see. We'll see if uh, <laughs> how challenging they are. Uh, the first one. Recently, a Christian leader came under fire for winsomeness via the culture war, with a critic saying that the time for winsomeness had passed because this was this was now war for the heart of the nation. While I disagree with the critic, I'd be interested to know, is there ever a time where winsomeness isn't appropriate? Is there a time where winsomeness isn't appropriate? I think it's always appropriate. Uh, can it be winsomeness and, perhaps? Um, I, I just think that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. And so the approach that God has modeled for us in Scripture and what he's called us to, what we just heard from you, Ernie, is an approach that looks different. And it's an out-of-our-hands kind of thing. It's a, a journey of faith. And so I feel like when we trust God enough to believe that winsomeness is enough, then he's going to take care of is is it ever is it ever our task to turn over the tables to to flip over the tables as as Jesus did do you, do you, do you know what i mean yeah like is it <clears throat> i i'm going to respond to that I, like i don't know everything that's in behind that question yeah. um but i'm going to respond this way there were i'm trying to think whether it was 12 or 13 crusades to the holy land the church trying to gain the Holy Land back using the sword. Um, that's actually not the way to win. Um, so in, in the context of North America and those who feel like we're losing ground as the church to society and secularism and humanism and liberal ideas, etc., uh, to, to, to aggressively use tactics that are borderline violent. Um, number one, I don't think it models Christ. Number two, it, it seems to suggest that we actually don't have confidence in God's sovereignty. And number three, it, it doesn't reflect an understanding, as you said, about an upside-down kingdom, that actually being salt and light from the grassroots up is the way, not carrying out big stick and beating it down from the top. So, so I, 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 yeah, we can pull up that example of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, and this is, this is God reacting to the desecration of his temple, especially the Gentile court that was for Gentiles and women, was turned into a loud market of money changers and sacrificial animals, which meant they couldn't worship. And he cleared them out of there to make a statement. Um, so we're going to use that one example to justify violence. I'm, I'm not sure that it works. Because you have to look at all the rest of Scripture as well. Uh, here, here's, a, here's another comment, and um, we'll see if we can work through this one. Um, I find it easier to respond with compassion and love to those who are lost. What I struggle with is how to respond in love and generosity to fellow Christians that dogmatically disagree with this perspective of respect and love for those who persecute you. Any tips? Um, 
yeah, I, th this is, this is, this is real life, right? Like, mm -hmm. we, I have good friends, I have good uh, family members that I love, that love Jesus, that have a different perspective than what we are presenting here. How do we, how do we work those together? Occasionally, I do well at this, and a lot of times I don't. But when I occasionally do well at this, it is when I am thinking and viewing others as I hope uh, and see how Christ is at work in my life. And that is that Christ is at work in their life too. And that they have a story that I can write all sorts of things about what I think is going on in their lives, but God's at work in their lives, and God's at work in my life, and God is extremely gracious to me, and so God's going to be gracious to them. So to me, if I just recognize them as people that are on a journey, just like I am, then that has helped me to um, accept where they're at. I, I would add two things. Um, there's that really uncomfortable part in the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> the most uncomfortable statement in all of Scripture. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us which almost seems to suggest that if I don't forgive, you don't, you don't need to forgive me. Ouch. That's tough. So, so I have to be forgiving. Uh, number two, and our text suggested it, we're not supposed to judge. Um, I can say what you did is wrong, but I can't judge you because I, I can't read the heart and the motivation. God can do that, so God can judge. So I can say that a particular behavior is wrong, but I can't judge the person. Uh, so if I take those and balance them and say this person really disagrees with me or is taking a, a, an approach that I would even maybe even consider unchristian, I need to be forgiving, I need to recognize that I can't read the motives of the heart, and I need to pray and trust that God is working in their life as much as he is in mine. And then I need to also be careful that I'm not arrogant and think he's wrong, I'm right. That's the other problem. That's, that's, that's also like we get sanctimonious. Well, of course I'm right. Well, then I've lost some of that humility. It, it is interesting when you walk into a situation where where you try to be humble in a situation where it feels like um, the person that you're in dialogue with isn't. That, that for me, that for me, I'll be honest, for me is that it is a huge challenge. Um, and, and for me, the, I want to love, I want to be generous, I want to be, but it's those points where they're just really hard. We're all on a journey. I mean, everybody, every single one of us, and if I look back to where I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, um, my perspective on life and, and my walk with the Lord has changed and I believe has grown. And so, again, recognizing that, that the Lord is at work in their lives too is, is to me, a saving grace point. Because he's certainly grace, gracious to me. If you have a difficult person in your life, Start praying for that person every day. And, I, and I'm not talking about praying that they'll have an accident. 
heaping coals. I'm, I'm not praying about heaping coals. I'm just saying, actually, in goodwill, pray blessing upon that person. It's really hard to stay angry with somebody when you're praying for them. I found in language school, I had a roommate who broke the rules, and I'm a bit of a rule Nazi. And he went and did laundry on Sunday, which was against the rules. And we were roommates. We, our room, he was from Ecuador, and I was from Canada. And, and we started having devotions every night. I led one night, he led the next, and we rotated. And it was short. We'd have devotions. We'd pray together. That ruffled, that just got rid of all of the, the ruffles. That just smoothed the, everything out. And we probably, to this day, don't have the same perception about how you're supposed to respond to rules. But, but that, that fixed our relationship. So I, I think praying for somebody, if you have a difficult person in your life, pray for that person. That's, and, and I'm saying that for you. I'm not even thinking of the other person. Of course, it's good for that person too. But I'm saying that for you because as you pray for that person, it'll help you. Right? Uh the last couple of things, uh, there was a, a comment here that just encouraged, encouraged us that in the middle of kind of walking through all the stuff that we've experienced in the last while, that we, we have this opportunity to be loving and to show those around us what it means to be a witness. And the other comment was that is, um, talked a little bit about uh, context mattering. Um, sometimes... Uh, the difference between driving in Steinbeck and driving in Mexico and the use of your horn is probably a little different, right? Like, yeah. And sometimes there's different situations where our context and how we respond yeah. is a little bit different. So, That's why I use it less. Here? Here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. I had an air horn in Nicaragua. That worked better. <laughs> All right, thank you, gentlemen.